Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, January the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today to wrap up the political week are Pat Leahy and Harry McGee. And and Harry, going to you first, the week has been somewhat unexpectedly dominated by men in vans driving around north central Dublin in 2016. It has, and it shouldn't have been. But again, politicians uh, bamboozle us all from time to time with their inability to nip a problem in the bud. The difficulty arose when it became known that Pascal Donoghue had admitted to include a donation in his expenses statement from an election seven years ago. And the money, the amount of money involved is very small, but uh, it's not the amount of money. It's really the fact that full disclosure wasn't uh, made. He had a press conference on Sunday in which he kind of partially explained it. And then he came in to do a, a statement to the Doyle on Wednesday evening in which he made a clarifying statement. I think his mistake on Wednesday was that he wasn't prepared to answer any questions. So we were left with kind of slightly rowdy scenes at the end with the opposition TDs baying for answers uh, with Pascal Donoghue quite strongly refusing and saying that he was sending uh, all of his submissions into the Standards in Public Office Commission. And that was a, a very unsatisfactory situation. So fast forward to yesterday morning, Tuesday, or Thursday, should I say, and he made this unexpected statement in the Doyle uh, during parliamentary questions, apropos of nothing really, that he was going to make a further statement about the 2016 donation uh, from Michael Stone and the issues surrounding that. And that has led to uh, another round of speculation, which I presume will continue until Tuesday when he uh, stands up in the Doyle and makes the statement. I think the difference on Tuesday is that he is prepared to, to accept questions. But by that stage, it might be uh, quite late for him. And he has moved from a situation where he was in a little bit of bother to a situation now where he's in a lot of bother. How much bother? It's very, very hard to ascertain, Hugh, because there's a, a dearth of information. One of the changes uh, between yesterday morning and last night, it's quite subtle and nuanced, but it's quite important nonetheless. When he addressed the matter in the Dáil yesterday morning, he said he would be making a further statement in relation to the 2016 election. Uh, but later in the day, his spokesperson did not specifically mention 2016. She uh, said that he would be making a statement in relation to the issues raised without specifying a date. And that has fueled speculation uh, that he has omitted or neglected or forgotten to mention something that pertains to the 2020 election. And if there is new information in relation to that, I think that he is going to be in some considerable difficulty, given how adamant he and his people have been all week uh, that there was nothing to see whatsoever in 2020, other than the uh, contributions made by Mr Stone to the Fine Gael super draw. Pat, you analyse all this in this morning's Irish Times, and it does seem to have moved from really quite a small storm and quite a small teacup earlier in the week because a 
partly because, as Harry says, the sums of money are quite small. Um, the amount in which they go over the required limit is pretty tiny. Um, people didn't seem too concerned. That does seem to have, it things seem to have ratcheted up a fair bit now. Is this, a, this is clearly a problem of Pascal Donoghue's own making, but is he making it worse over the course of this week? Well, this is one of the remarkable things about it, that he every statement that he has made appears to have made things worse. We've had three interventions from him during the week, the one on press conference, hastily convened press conference outdoors on Sunday, his dull statement on Wednesday, and then a routine oral PQs yesterday in which he looked distinctly uncomfortable. When this issue was raised, uh, he eventually said that he would issue uh, another statement in the doll next week. And, you know, I don't think it's the, you know, the greatest piece of political analysis you'll ever hear to say that he would pretty much have to nail it and put it to bed next Tuesday. Or as, as Harry said, you know, he could be in some quite substantial difficulty. I do think, though, that, you know, when trying to make sense uh, of this... I think to some extent we have to try and separate what the actual infraction or offence is and the manner in which he has, has handled it. Because clearly the manner in which he's handled it has been somewhat chaotic and ill-advised. But the actual issue at stake, did he wrongly declare, we know he underdeclared his spending by somewhere over a thousand euros in the 2016 general election. It does appear to be, there are questions certainly by the 2020 general election and perhaps that will be something that he addresses on, uh, on Tuesday. But these are, it's difficult to see them at the moment as hanging offences, uh, I think. Now that may change the more we get to know about it, but, but certainly it seems to me given the frequency with which politicians uh, can amend their, uh, their electoral declarations and the somewhat kind of random and chaotic nature of the declarations uh, themselves, it's not a terribly... Well, some accounting for election spending is absolutely necessary. The system that is used, I think, Harry might uh, agree, having spent much of the week up to his elbows in it, is... Uh, somewhat inconsistent and, uh, and and a little bit random. But the actual offence that we know of uh, right now for Pascal Donoghue seems, uh, seems to me on the face of it not to be uh, a hanging one. That's one of the reasons why I think that unless the picture changes materially uh, that he will uh, survive this, but there's no question that he is damaged by it. Yeah, without going totally down into the weeds of it, Harry, could you shed some light on what seems like a pretty unsatisfactory process by which these these sorts of expenditures are accounted for? Yes, some kind of opaque light. <laughs> it's pretty complicated. Um, I was writing a piece for tomorrow and kind of saying it's like a, a, a non-rugby person trying to explain the intricacies of the scrum law. It's just very complicated and there's lots of cross-referencing involved. Essentially, I mean, the state gives political parties loads of money and it favours essentially the parties that are, are in situ. So uh, by comparison, the actual donations that they can receive from individuals and from corporations is really low compared to many other countries. In Britain, you can get millions of pounds from donors and we've seen it before without having to uh, declare it. And the same thing happens in the north of Ireland. Here, the limits are really low. So if you are a corporation, you can only uh, donate €200 Euro, uh, to a, an individual. 
you can uh, donate uh, a little more to a party. If you're an individual, you can only donate um, a thousand euro to an individual and then 2,500 euro to a party. And then on top of that, there are disclosure limits. So if you don't want your name out there in the public lights, uh, if you, you can't give more than 600 euro in any one year to an individual or 1,500 euro uh, to a party. So what happens around elections is that there are very strict spending limits uh, in relation to elections and they set a limit uh, uh, for each candidate. And in 2016, in Dublin Central, it was a three-seat constituency and each candidate was allowed to spend €30,150. Pascal Donoghue came close enough to that. I think my tally is he came to up to somewhere around 27223 That's without the Michael Stone uh, donation. So they have what the politician has to do is they have to uh, uh, write down all the expenses incurred during the election campaign, put them on a form, write it out longhand. Uh, the form is sent in to SIPO, uh, the Standards and Public Office Commission. They scan it, they upload it. It's put onto an unreadable uh, file that takes hours to trawl through. And you find, as you look through the various statements from various candidates, successful and unsuccessful, that it's all very bitty, it's all very inconsistent, and there are just huge anomalies to be found. For example, one of the big comparisons that's been made between Pascal is with his constituency colleague, Mary Fitzpatrick. Uh, she spent nearly €5,000 uh, erecting and, and taking down posters during that campaign. But she was the only person in the whole constituency who did that. So all of the rest must either have um, um, relied on volunteers or, or else, um, um, you know, uh, didn't put up posters. And then when you go through the country, there's only a handful of people who have attributed costs uh, to putting up posters and taking them down. And even when they attribute those costs, they vary hugely. Uh, Mary Fitzpatrick was 5,000. Nobody else came within a country mile of her expense. Uh, in Dublin, uh, Ratdown, for example, in 2020, uh, both uh, Josepha Madigan and Neil Richmond applied costs of €600. Euro. So the explanation for that is that they might have got somebody in to do some of their posters and got volunteers to do the rest. And maybe Pascal Dunn, who did that in 2016, uh, that, that Michael Stone and his workers did some of his posters and he got volunteers to do uh, the rest. The thing with Mary Fitzpatrick is that when you look for her figure for posters, the printing of posters, there's nothing there. It's about two or three hundred euro where everybody else is 5,000. So how do you explain that? Well, each of the candidates can assign uh, some of their expenses to the party and the party pays for some of the things centrally. So Fianna Fáil centrally paid for her posters. But the thing is that you don't see that in her returns. So when you try, there's no, and there's no reconciliation between the national spending and the local spending. So it becomes very confused very quickly and it's very, very difficult uh, to try to reconcile uh, who has spent what and, and where. And then you go to the candidates and some have assigned money for travel, for secretarial assistance, and then some others haven't. And you wonder how some of the candidates got by uh, with no secretarial uh, assistance or no office uh, uh, during the course of an election uh, campaign. And the difficulty that SIPO has is that it can only really investigate uh, and to take a deep dive into these expenses on foot of a complaint. It can't do things of its own volition. And that is a big difficulty. Uh, and that is something that is badly in need of reform. And the other area that needs to be reformed is that when somebody is found uh, to have made a, 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 a an omission or an indiscretion, and no matter how minor, uh, there aren't the sanctions available really uh, with which to deal with them. Uh, in, in Irish politics, it tends to be you get away scot-free 
or else you walk the plank and lose your job as an office holder. There doesn't seem to be any in between. It doesn't happen at the CEPO level. Of course, it happens in the court of public opinion. And it is generally accepted, Pat, that this is a not-fit-for-purpose system, including by this government, has been accepted by this government, and supposedly reforms are in train. And of course, that falls within the remit of the relevant minister, who is one Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, although I believe he's recused himself from that element of his role while this uh, while this process happens. I mean, it's only a week ago since we were discussing the rapid departure of Damien English. That seemed a more clear-cut case in terms of him failing to divulge um, highly relevant information in, in terms of looking for planning permission to build a house in County Mead. So on the face of it, that case seemed clearer, but it did happen very quickly. This is a very different situation, not just because of the nature of the case itself, but because of the status of Pascal Donoghue. And looking at Miriam Lord's column this morning, uh, she says, and I quote, Quote, if Pascal Donoghue falls, the whole house of cards with this government falls with him. Yeah, and that's, I think, when you go back to the politics uh, of it. And I made the same point this morning in, in my piece that in actual fact, it was a senior Fianna Fáler who said to me that, you know, if Pascal goes, coalition is gone by Christmas. And uh, I think the political reality is that the, uh, the importance of Pascal Donoghue to this, uh, to this government probably can't, be overstated. Um, himself and Michael McGrath form the kind of working axis of the government on a day-to-day basis. They have a closer, more collaborative relationship than exists between the two leaders of the uh, of, of the big parties for for a variety uh, of reasons, really. But it is a fact that everybody in uh, in government acknowledges. Um, the swap over between them in finance and public expenditure was pretty seamless. The budget that they produced last week, and remember that a budget is above all the expression, uh, above everything else it does over the course of the year, the expression of the political will of, uh, of, of any government. That budget that they produced last year, which gave away 11 billion uh, uh, euros, largest in the history of the state um, in, in comparative terms, um, was very much seen as a joint production between Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath, just as the next budget, albeit that they have switched roles, will be a joint production between Michael McGrath and uh, and, and Pascal Donoghue. The two of them sit on practically all the uh, important cabinet committees. They are central to the decision-making process of the, go- uh, of the government. Further to that, they are also, the two of them, uh, and Pascal Donoghue particularly, are kind of the only voices for spending restraint uh, within uh, within government, and uh, I, I I think that not just um, you know not just on that front, but on the general day to day workings of government and the nature of of how government works means that finance and public expenditure are at the very heart of uh, of most of the decisions uh, that are made. Uh, I, I think the loss of Pascal Donoghue um, would be incalculable to this government. I think people know that. And that is why it seems to me that there's a much higher bar would be required for um uh, for him to uh, for for his resignation than we are currently at. Now who knows what we will find out over the coming days and on Tuesday, but um uh, but but you know where we are currently at i find it i find it difficult to see not just because of 
the nature of the offence, which we discussed uh, a while ago, but because uh, because of his his importance to the continued uh, the operation of the coalition. And the other side of that coin, Harry, is that it potentially, at least, however narrow that possibility, offers a great opportunity for the opposition and for and for Sinn Fein in particular to really hold this government below the waterline and perhaps bring it to an end um, more quickly than most people have anticipated up until now. Oh, for uh, sure. And <laughs> Piers Doherty has been out in full metal jacket all week and has been pounding away at the government like a howitzer. Uh, and in fairness to him, he has his homework done and he's a very, uh, very cogent uh, debater and very uh, uh, persuasive in terms of his rhetoric. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for um, Sinn Féin and for the coalition. I'll agree completely with Pat and with what Miriam said this morning. Um, if a minister of state goes, um, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate but, but, but tolerable. But if somebody like Pascal Donoghue of his stature, who is also chair of the Eurogroup of finance ministers or ministers at, uh, pertaining to finance, if he goes, that's going to, that's going to drive a fissure through the heart of government, especially the Fine Gael side, and will essentially, um, you know, skew and, and get people to readjust very, very radically their assessment as to how long this government is going uh, to last. And, you know, it's, I mean, I'm going to trot out an old Albert Reynolds uh, cliche. Uh, it's the little things that trip you up, you know. And I, I heard Barry Cowan on the radio this morning talking about how great a, a minister that Pascal Donoghue has been from a Fianna Fáil perspective. But all of that is going to be immaterial, you know, if um, the, the court of public opinion is, is very unforgiving and uh, the public expects politicians to live up to a standard uh, that is not impossibly high, but that is very high. And even if they fail by a couple of centimetres, uh, the punishment can be quite absolute, as we have found out in recent months and in recent years. I think if Pascal Donoghue were to resign, and it's very premature to say anything of this, it could turn out to be uh, a very uh, boring and mundane clarifying statement on Tuesday. We just don't know. The vacuum is part of the political problem that the government faces at the moment. Uh, but if you were uh, to uh, resign, uh, it would create a crisis for the government greater than any that I can think of in, in the past number of years, greater than that of Francis Fitzgerald or Alan Shatter uh, or others, uh, Barry Cowan, Dara Cleary, those who have had to resign at a senior level uh, from government. We'll wait and see what, what happens on Tuesday. We're going to take a quick break, but before we do, just to remind you that we've been discussing lots of articles on irishtimes.com and we'll be discussing a few more after this break. Uh, if you want to get access to all of those, um, the best thing to do is to subscribe to the Irish Times or a very reasonable rate. You can see those rates if you go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. That's irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Pat and Harry are still with us. Pat, I'm looking at the um, the front page lead on the Irish Times today. It's pretty grim reading, actually. A, a real crisis in terms of accommodation for migrants and refugees arriving in Ireland in the weeks to come. Yes, let me just shuffle my newspaper here I have in front of me, Hugh. So, uh, very, very, old, very old school to, there, Pat. Uh, I get it delivered every morning, Hugh. I wouldn't be without it. Um, yeah, I think this is a real uh, crisis. Um, the, the state is running out of space very quickly uh, to accommodate refugees, both from Ukraine and elsewhere. Of course, people who come from Ukraine are automatically designated to be refugees. People who arrive from elsewhere arrive here 
seeking, as they're entitled to do under international law, uh, refugee status and their um, their entitlement to that status or otherwise is then adjudicated upon by the state over a period of time. But the state is obligated to uh, to look after them whilst a determination is being uh, is being made on their case. Anyway, state's running out of space to put them up, and we are, you know, confronted with the very real prospect of, you know, while the doll is discussing Pascal Donahue's posters next Tuesday. Uh, that people will be freezing their arses off in uh, in tents around the place, are on the streets, are sleeping on uh, on the floor in Dublin Airport, and uh, you know the state is really scrambling to build uh, short term or to source short term accommodation for people, but it is uh, it is falling short, and you'd have to wonder about the extent of the foresight that has been uh, applied there, because this problem has been growing, you know, since last summer, and uh, I, you know, I think it is a real, it's 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 a real crisis, and I think will be a story uh, that will run o- over the coming weeks and months, and won't be far from our attention at any stage. Um, this is a crisis with no visible resolution, it seems to me, Harry. Um, I'm not sure what the solution is at all. There is no space there. And people continue to arrive. And some of the accommodation that's currently being provided isn't going to be available as as hotels reopen for regular business in the months ahead. Yeah, I think um, the Department of, of Integration actually was predicting that there would be a shortfall of 8,000 beds uh, in hotels from March onwards. And the extent to which um, the government has relied on Hotels, B and Bs, and pubs. Temporary accommodation is 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 just really big. I there was a per- parliamentary question submitted by Joe Flaherty, a Fianna Fáil TD from Longford before Christmas, uh, asking how much the state had paid uh, for hotel and uh, accommodation for those seeking international protection. Now these aren't Ukrainians; these are people from other countries who have come to Ireland, and the average uh, from October onwards has been thirty six million euro per month. So when you do it over the course of a year, you're talking about you know, uh, uh, almost half a billion euro in emergency accommodation in hotels and B&Bs alone for those in the international protection category. So it's 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 a system that is stretched uh, almost to uh, breaking point. They've tried everything. They've tried to bring back vacant houses. Uh, they've tried to repurpose old government stock to get old OPW buildings uh, into service. Uh, before Christmas, they uh, they launched a campaign uh, to get people to give up their second homes and their holiday homes uh, to uh, those coming in from Ukraine. I think they had hoped that as many as 20,000 people would volunteer. I think the figure is less than 1,000 at the moment. So um, it's really difficult. And as Pat said, um, Roger Gunn-Corman, unfortunately for him, said before Christmas that uh, we are not going to be using any tense um, into the future. That was one of those kind of read my lips moment because as soon as the new year started, we had a fresh crisis in relation to the numbers coming in and they have been using tense. And as Pat was saying, it's very likely that they will have no uh, uh, option or no alternative but to use tense uh, going forward. And the projection for people uh, uh, coming in uh, in 2023 is that the numbers will continue to rise so we already have no accommodation and we will have to try to find accommodation uh, for the increase of people coming in, both from Ukraine and the, the, the higher number of people seeking international protection. 
Pat, this is first and foremost a humanitarian crisis, obviously, but how do you think it's going to play politically? Because that's not entirely clear to me. Yeah, it's difficult to it's difficult to see, isn't it? You know, I think that there is there's obviously a political issue which is emerging. Um, we see growing protests against the situating of uh, asylum seekers and refugees in certain communities. I wouldn't overstate that. It's very much a minority pursuit at the moment and the overwhelming response of the Irish people as a whole and amongst communities around the country has been to welcome uh, refugees, particularly refugees from the war in Ukraine into their uh, into their communities. And the state has made uh, a very considerable provision for that. That having been said, there is clearly an issue in some communities that will have to be uh, that will have to be addressed, and it's you know it's hard to look down the road and see where that dynamic, but also how the state manages to secure uh, accommodation provision for uh, tens of thousands of people that may come here over over the coming months in a very short period of time and. You know, there is efforts to build uh, modular uh, accommodation for them underway, but not in anything like the sort of numbers or not not to anything like the sort of extent that would be needed to accommodate some of the numbers that uh, that that may that may arrive. And, you know, I have a, a sneaking suspicion that, you know, there is a sort of a strategy uh, at play, maybe even by default, that if it emerges that the state cannot accommodate asylum seekers or refugees from Ukraine who are coming here, then maybe they'll, the hope is that they'll go somewhere else. And uh, if, the, if that is the case, then, uh, you know, I think we're in for uh, a difficult few months before the numbers diminish Obviously. Well, I think it's right to say, isn't it, that in relation to people from the Ukraine, there have been statements made. I mean, there is a sense that, that, that it, it works differently in a, in a number of different ways. There have been statements made, including, I think, by the Ukrainian ambassador to Ireland, that there was, there was an accommodation mm. problem. And that I'm not sure where correlation and causation uh, collide here, but that did seem to uh, coincide with a with a bit of a reduction in the number of Ukrainian refugees arriving. Yeah, but you have the potential for the war to escalate in the in the spring. Sure. That's generally accepted, and uh, you know that could so there's there's other factors at play uh, as uh, as well, and I think we would be. Uh, I think we'd be foolish. It would be foolish for the state to simply say, "Well, you know, okay, we're we're uh, our accommodation is nearly full, so don't come here anymore." People who are fleeing a war will come anywhere that they can, uh, I, I guess, and that applies, I suppose, to uh, some uh, or many of the asylum seekers who are coming coming from uh, elsewhere. So, I mean, I. Th- I just think this is something that is going to be front and centre for the government to deal with uh, over the over the coming months and uh, how the politics of that play out in a way is kind of secondary, you know. It is first and foremost, a, as you say, a humanitarian crisis that Ireland has played its part in. Right. Before we go, we do like on Friday to rustle up a few of the articles that caught our attention over the course of the week and that you can read um, if you have uh, done as I suggested earlier and signed up to become a subscriber to irishtimes.com. Harry, what took your attention? Yeah, it relates to the Ukraine crisis. It's and it's it's a it's a piece that we not we don't normally expect from a writer like this. It was the front page piece on the weekend supplement last Saturday by David McWilliams, uh, who wrote a really excellent uh, feature uh, on uh, a recent visit he made to 
Ukraine. And he started it off in the most, the most unlikely setting of a comedy club. But then he set out to give a very, um, a, a very, uh, uh, really excellent and compelling uh, kind of first person account of the situation that's there, the politics of it, uh, how um, Ukrainian society has, has developed since Zelensky uh, became president uh, seven or eight years ago or eight years ago and um, uh, how uh, the people have coped with the war. And it was really a, an excellent, compelling piece that really kind of got to the, the heart, the human heart of the matter and how this war has had an impact on on individuals and on families and on real people. So it was really, really compelling read. I agree. I was very struck by David's piece as well. I'm going to nominate another piece from last Saturday, which was our colleague Jennifer Bray. Jen wrote a piece about a subject which we've mentioned on this podcast, which is the level of abuse and you know gendered uh, attacks that women politicians um, in Ireland face these days. And there was real some real eye-openers in it. I was particularly noted the way that so many of the politicians were reluctant to give their names. And there was a case of somebody who had talked about this on the radio, which meant that the abuse had ratcheted it up by a factor of, of, of five or six. And just the sheer absolute awfulness of some of the stuff that, that people have to put up with and the way in which that undoubtedly affects the decisions of, of some people and women in particular uh, to, to go into into politics. Uh, it was kind of depressing. Uh, the only odd bit of hope that I can give to it is because it, it, possibly, this is a slim hope, is that um, some listeners may have heard my interview with Helen Lewis earlier in the week and she was suggesting, among other things, that um, that we may have passed peak social media or, or anyway this kind of social media anyway, that the generation that are coming through now that are in their teens and going into their 20s are less interested in these kinds of witch-burning activities which seem to have been so become so popular over the last 10 or 15 years. I hope that's true. But it was a grim story and it was a bit of an eye-opener for me. Pat, what were you reading? And I might add a really important piece, possibly one of the most important political pieces we will uh, we will publish this year, Agreed. I suspect, even though we're only a couple of weeks uh, into it. Um, uh, yeah, a couple of things that struck me that, that I guess, um, you know, would maybe outlast the week. Um, I read a lot of the coverage of the resignation or the the intention, the announcement that she intends to resign of Jacinda Ardern, the uh, New Zealand uh, Prime Minister. She explained it by saying by by saying that she was human, uh, which I wasn't I wasn't sure was in question. Uh, but um, but actually, the piece that uh, that I picked was um, an analysis piece. Uh, by our Northern editor, Freya McClements, in the paper on uh, Wednesday, in which she reflected on the coming choice that the DUP will have to make. And there was British ministers here yesterday uh, for the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. Um, The talks between the EU and the UK on finding a new deal on the protocol have been ramped up. It appears what is likely to happen, not certain, but what is likely to happen is that there will be a deal between the UK and the EU on the protocol which will not alter the text of it, but will introduce a very light touch uh, regulatory regime on goods that are uh, crossing from uh, Great Britain to uh, Northern Ireland. That doesn't meet the DUP's red lines as it is. And uh, the point that Frey was making is that there is a big choice coming up for uh, for the DUP. Will they continue to say no, no, no and stay outside, refuse to, uh, uh, refuse to allow for the resuscitation of the Northern institutions or will they accept a compromise on it which, uh, which uh, uh, eliminates most or nearly all 
checks on uh, on goods, along presumably with some assurances that would form part of the deal that the constitutional status of Northern Ireland uh, is not in any way uh, affected by this. So I think it's a big choice and a big challenge of leadership for Geoffrey Donaldson coming up and Freya in her piece laid it all out um, uh, pretty well. I can predict with some, I think with some confidence that that is a subject which we will be returning to in the in the weeks ahead. It's likely to be very high on the agenda. But we will leave that for today. Uh, thanks to Harry. Thanks to Pat. Uh, thanks to our producer, Declan Conan and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, have a great weekend and thanks for listening. <laughs>